Welcome to part four of a multi-week study called A Bible Prophecy Timeline. It's being released as a video series as well as on my podcast feed, all available at BibleProphecyTalk.com. This episode is called The Wars of the Antichrist. And for context, it fits on the timeline just after the temple sacrifices start and just before the palatial tents are set up, which we'll look at next time. It's interesting that in Revelation 13, part of the reason people seem to love and worship the Antichrist is because of his war-making capability. It says in Revelation 13, 4b, And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Some translations say, who can make war against it? Note that this statement seems to be an apparent reverence. I submit that the reason these earth dwellers feel this way about the Antichrist in the end times is because he is casting himself as a defender, as a liberator. His inability to be defeated in battle, therefore, is a pro. It's a good thing from their perspective. And it's spoken of here in Revelation 13, a lot like other biblical passages speak about the Messiah, when Jesus will return in victorious battle against his enemies in the day of the Lord. We see hints of the Antichrist's wars in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, but it's mostly in Daniel 11 that we get the fine details, and that's where I will be spending most of my time today. So let me explain some things about Daniel chapter 11. This is a huge prophecy from Daniel. It covers the 150 years or so after Alexander the Great's death, in which Alexander's four generals fought many wars for the Greek Empire, sometimes called the Diodaci Wars. It's so accurate of a prophecy and so detailed about the events in those days that many critics of the Bible say it must have been written after the fact, but there's no evidence of this. Starting at verse 21, it begins to talk about the deeds of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a king of the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus is widely considered to be a type of Antichrist because of his blasphemous acts, as I will assume many of you know. Most conservative scholars recognize that from about verse 21 through around verse 30, the events being described are only about Antiochus. There is nothing to do with the Antichrist there. But as is the case in other sections in Daniel and other parts of the Bible, there is a near-far fade-in effect that starts to happen at this point, where the historical type, Antiochus in this case, is in view at first, and then it sort of fades into a future prophecy, where only the prophecy of the future is in view. Most of what I'll be talking about today occurs in verses 40 through 45, which is firmly in the section that is understood by virtually every conservative scholar to be exclusively about the Antichrist. Let me read the section first. It says, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall come into countries, and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. 
I'll start off by giving a brief overview of the way that I see this passage, and then I'll spend the remainder of the time trying to prove it from Scripture. I believe that because of the covenant that the Antichrist makes at the beginning of the seven-year period, the king of the north and the king of the south attack him. Remember from the last few episodes, the Antichrist, quote, strengthens the covenant. We also see that he starts the daily sacrificial system on the Temple Mount. These events would be cause for World War III today. It may also be cause for a war in the future. Their motivations may be different, I don't really know, but in any case, these kings attack him first. I believe the Antichrist then proceeds to take control of the entire Middle East, from Egypt to Assyria through warfare. These wars have three goals from the Antichrist's perspective, besides the obvious goal of consolidating power for his upcoming kingdom. Number one, to show his might in war, to put on display, to show everyone how utterly hopeless it is to fight against him and his armies, basically to glorify himself and his, quote, God of fortresses. His second goal, to take control of all the lands that were promised to Israel by God, a key prophecy of the Messiah, that is to establish greater Israel, to make a, quote, highway from Egypt to Assyria. Number three, if the Antichrist wants people to believe that the Messianic Age is about to begin, then these wars are intended to serve as a false eschatological battle which precedes the Messianic Age in both Judaism and Christianity. To the Jews, this would be a false Gog-Magog war. To the Christians, a false Armageddon. Let me start off by defending the idea that these wars in Daniel 11, 40-45 take place after the covenant but before the midpoint. One of the reasons is because of Daniel 12.1. As most of you know, the chapter breaks in the Bible are not canonical. They were added in the Middle Ages. The chapter break between Daniel 11 and 12 makes some people miss the clear chronological connection, which is made plain by the phrase, at that time, in Daniel 12.1. Quote, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. At what time? Well, it could be general or specific. It could be just at the time of these wars, or it could be at the exact time where it says the Antichrist pitches his royal tents outside Jerusalem, but comes to his end. In the next episode, I will argue that this coming to his end is the apparent death and resurrection of the Antichrist spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, which causes most of the world to worship him as God, which precedes him sitting in the temple, declaring himself to be God at the midpoint. And some strong evidence of that is this phrase that Daniel uses, a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. Many of you will recognize that phrase as something that was spoken of in the Olivet Discourse by Jesus. It says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those that are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight not be on the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. 
So this time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time, corresponds to, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be, which almost no conservative scholar would dispute is talking about the time just after the midpoint. Therefore, we can expect the wars of the Antichrist described in Daniel 11:40-45 to occur before the midpoint. Another reason I would suggest that these wars in Daniel 11:40-45 are before the midpoint is that the Antichrist, as we saw last time, is only given the authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation for three and a half years, a clear reference to the time after the midpoint. Therefore, if he is fighting with the king of the south and east and north, Edom and Moab and the Ammonites, he clearly does not have that authority yet. Therefore, these wars must be before the midpoint. Another way to pinpoint the Antichrist's wars on the timeline is found in the Olivet Discourse, where we see the birth pains. We know that these events occur before the midpoint, as Jesus makes it perfectly clear in context. But to those of you that have recognized the connections between the events in the Olivet Discourse and the seals in Revelation 6, you know that the first few birth pains and the first few seals correspond to the beginning of the seven-year period, and both are a picture of the Antichrist conquering and making war, whether that's the rider on the white horse going out conquering and to conquer, or the first birth pains, which is false Christs and wars and rumors of wars. You also know that there is a clear chronological progression from the birth pains to the abomination of desolation at the midpoint, and then to the celestial disturbances and the beginning of the day of the Lord. So to the degree that you understand that the seals and the events of Matthew 24 are linked is the same degree you will have proof that the wars of the Antichrist are after the beginning of the 70th week, but before the midpoint. Let's move on to a critical and often overlooked subject, who is the Antichrist fighting and why? And let's first figure out what we can be sure of with clear passages with regard to who he is fighting, and then work through some of the less clear passages to determine who else he might be fighting. Starting off, we know Egypt is the unambiguous king of the south and is the enemy of the Antichrist in these wars initially. It says right here that Egypt attacks him. Also in verse 42, it's as plain as can be that the Antichrist both fights with and soundly defeats Egypt in these wars. This fact alone makes this a difficult passage for the Islamic Antichrist theorists. Why should a Muslim Antichrist attack a Muslim country as his first order of business? I believe it's also clear that the king of the north attacks him as well. It says the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. The king of the north in the earlier parts of this chapter is the Greek Seleucid Empire, which is today a coalition of Islamic nations we might think of in biblical parlance as Assyria. I'll come back to this one later because there are some who don't think it's as clear as I do. Next up is the glorious land. It says, He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. A lot of people assume that the entering of the glorious land is to kill Jews. And while that's possible, I don't think that's what this passage is telling us. The reason is because of the second part of the verse, which says, But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. These are all historical, biblical enemies of Israel, which are today Islamic nations. 
The ESV says they were, quote, delivered from his hands. Other versions say they escaped from his hand. The underlying Hebrew word for being delivered seems to mean here the same thing it means in English, which is to escape from something. Every lexicon I checked translates it this way, that is, in a way that makes it clear that these groups were being pursued by the Antichrist as enemies, but were able to slip away. If this is true, we have two data points to help with our interpretation. Number one, the glorious land which he enters and destroys people in apparently includes vast areas around modern Israel, like the majority of Jordan. So while I'm sure that the glorious land must include Israel, it certainly is not limited to what we would think of as Israel. Number two, the Antichrist is attempting to kill local enemies of Israel explicitly with this offensive. It may be that he also kills Jews here, but we are not told that. All we know for sure is that he is attempting to kill Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites, but is unsuccessful. I think this military move of the Antichrist in the Glorious Land is attempting to root out not just the large macro enemies of Israel, which we saw in the previous verse like Egypt and Assyria, but the micro enemies as well, what we would think of as the Palestinians or Philistines on the coastlands, and of course Edom and Moab. I think an important passage to interpret this is found in Isaiah 11, which is one of the only other places in the Bible that these nations are mentioned together. There you will see a prophecy of the Messiah, and it's one of the more clear passages about the millennium. But we also see a picture of the battles of the Messiah, in which he defeats the enemies of Israel, including Egypt, Assyria, Edom, Moab, Ammon, and the Philistines, in battle to prepare the world for the kingdom age, a prophecy which has yet to be fulfilled. To set the stage, I'll start at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamrath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah." From the four corners of the earth, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. And they shall put out their hands against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongues of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and will lead people across the sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. There are many such prophecies in the Bible about this pre-Messianic age battle. The idea is that rooting out the micro and macro enemies of Israel from the land, something that was never really done in Joshua's day but was commanded to be done, will finally be accomplished by the Messiah. This will restore the so-called greater Israel, which is the land that was initially given to Abraham, which is from Assyria to Egypt. And this highway from Assyria to Egypt is a consistent theme to refer to the geography of the Messianic age. 
To put it another way, no conservative Torah-believing Jew would believe that the Messiah has come and the Messianic age has begun unless this entire Middle East basically is under the control of the Messiah. And I believe it's as clear as day that that is exactly what the Antichrist is attempting to fulfill in these wars in Daniel 11. One quick sidebar is that I think one of the reasons that this prophecy may have been given is to provide future peoples with a way to prove that the Antichrist is not the Messiah. In Isaiah 11, the Messiah is supposed to conquer Edom, Moab, and Ammon. It's a critical part of the prophecy. And yet the Antichrist, we are told by Daniel, is not going to be able to do so. They are delivered from his hands, possibly providentially. Some think it has something to do with those who hide in Petra, but in any case, he can't do it. And I think it's going to be one way to prove that he isn't who he says he is. Moving on to Libya and Cush. It says in Daniel 11:43, He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and Cushites shall follow in his train. I think it's less clear about Libya and Cush. These are also African nations geographically. Think of Ethiopia as well as, well, Libya. It simply says of them that they follow in his train. This could mean that they do this as a result of the spectacular conquest of Egypt, as opposed to them having been allies or something before this. I think that every commentary I have on this assumes that this is a picture of their capitulation as a result of his conquest of Egypt, though they could also be a part of the many countries that the Antichrist was said to conquer as well. Next up, we have this news from the north and east, which troubles him. We're not told where this is, and it's kind of difficult to speculate with no other information, but we are told that it results in the annihilation of many people. Here again, I think that at least one reasonable takeaway on this point is that those who he kills here are not Jews. It's hard to imagine how news from the East would be seen as Jewish people. So if I do nothing here today, realize that the Antichrist is busy with killing Gentiles before the midpoint of the seven-year period. Okay, so let's back up and talk about the King of the North debate from the first part, from verse 40. Remember I said that I think it's clear that along with the King of the South, who is Egypt, the King of the North also attacks the Antichrist. The verse reads like this, At the time of the end, the King of the South shall attack him, and the King of the North shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Because the grammar is not quite clear as to who him is referring to here, there has arisen a division on how to interpret this verse. But pretty much all sides recognize that the grammar could go either way, so we need to find other criteria to determine the truth of this. The two main theories are sometimes called the three-king theory and the two-king theory, and there are really good scholars on both sides of the issue. On the one hand, you have the three-king theory, which sees there being three subjects in verse 40, the Antichrist, the King of the North, and the King of the South. So it would read as follows. And at the end time, the King of the South will collide with him, the Antichrist, and the King of the North will storm against him, the Antichrist. And he, the Antichrist, will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. So in this reading, the king of the south attacks the Antichrist, then the king of the north attacks the Antichrist, but the Antichrist defeats them both. The two-king theory has only two subjects in view. This is because they see the king of the north as the Antichrist. So it would read like this. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, the king of the north slash Antichrist, and the king of the north, the Antichrist, will storm against him, the king of the south. And he, the king of the north, 
will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. In this reading, it would be saying that the king of the south attacks the king of the north, who is also the Antichrist, but the king of the north, who is also the Antichrist, attacks the king of the south as well, and the Antichrist will be victorious. So if you are a three-king theorist like me, you think that both Egypt and Assyria attack the Antichrist in Daniel 11.40. If you are a two-king theorist, you think that the Antichrist, who is the king of the north, is attacked by Egypt in Daniel 11.40. Some of the reasons I hold to the three-king theory are that the pronouns he and him would be inconsistent otherwise. And I'm going to quote here from J. Paul Tanner. In Daniel 11.40, the pronouns on the prepositions marking the recipient of the verbal action are quite out of keeping with the way the hostilities between the two kings were previously described in the chapter. What I mean to say is that elsewhere in the chapter, whenever an assault by one of the kings against the other was mentioned, the one who was the object is specified by his full title, not merely a pronoun. In light of this characteristic writing style of the author, the him is more likely the same referent in this verse, namely the king of the preceding paragraph i.e. the Antichrist. This favors the three-king theory. Basically, the three-king theory has the distinction of being the way that you would naturally read the text, in my opinion. The two-king theory, I think, requires a teacher to tell you what is meant. However, I have compiled the arguments as well as my responses to those arguments for the two-king theory as well, just to be thorough. One of the arguments for the two-king theory is that people will say, well, if the three-king theory is true, it would mean that the North and South are allies all of a sudden. Joel Richardson, a proponent of the two-king theory, argues that in the three-king view, the king of the North and the king of the South have become allies, a point that he strongly disagrees with. Quote, the kings of the North and South who are enemies throughout the historical portion of the prophecy are suddenly cast as allies together against the Antichrist. I have two things to say about this. The first is that it's not a necessary conclusion of the three-king theory at all. Richardson quotes Tim LaHaye on this, who theorizes that since the king of the north attacks the Antichrist and the king of the south attacks him, that this is a coordinated attack of allies against their common enemy, the Antichrist. That view is assumed by LaHaye, but the text certainly does not say that they are coordinated joint attacks against the Antichrist or that the two kings are allies in any way. In addition, we're not given the chronology of these attacks. How far apart is the attack of the king of the north from the king of the south? We're not told. It could be years between these attacks. It could simply be that the Antichrist is attempting to gain control over the entire region, and these are isolated attempts from these countries at protecting themselves from the Antichrist. But even if these countries are making an alliance here against the Antichrist, it's not damaging to the three-king theory at all. In fact, contrary to what Richardson said, such a thing has precedence in the historical portion of Daniel 11. For example, an alliance was formed in verse 6 between the king of the north and the king of the south. There's no biblical reason that these kings would not find it advantageous to form an end times alliance in light of a mutual enemy of the magnitude of the Antichrist. The next thing that two-king theorists will say about the three-king view is that it makes Antiochus a type of the Antichrist and a type of his enemy. Joel Richardson says, The three-king view turns Antiochus into both a type of the Antichrist throughout all of Daniel chapter 8 as well as Daniel 11, 21 through 35, and a type of the Antichrist's greatest enemy. He says this because in the three-king view, you have the Antichrist defeating the king of the north, when in the historical portion of this chapter, the king of the north was the Seleucid Empire of which Antiochus was a part. I think this view is reading far too much into the idea of biblical types. 
Yes, Antiochus is a type of the Antichrist, but so is the king of Tyre, the king of Babylon, the king of Egypt, and more. But you're going to have nothing but contradictions if you start to demand that the fulfillment of the type will act just as their type did. By this point in Daniel, Antiochus is long gone. Everyone knows it. We're talking about just the Antichrist and the prophecies of his actions here. What Antiochus did or didn't do has nothing to do with this. Types are used to be shadows of things to come, but when you have transitioned to the actual description of the fulfillment of the prophecy with no type left, no conservative scholar even attempts to make Daniel 11, 40 through 45 about Antiochus, then the type has served its purpose. I would also argue that this is somewhat logically inconsistent as well. By its very nature, conservative scholars recognize that we've jumped from, you know, talking about Antiochus in verse 36, we've now jumped thousands and thousands of years into the future. There's no reason to expect we're dealing with anything remotely like it was in the Diodaci Wars. As I think most people understand, and as I've argued earlier in this study, this area is now ruled by 10 kings. It's just a different deal. There are not four kings. This is talking about a different situation. So we read the text and we sit under its judgment. We do not demand, well, it, it's not like Antiochus would have done. Uh, that's just irrelevant to this question. The next thing that people say against the three king theory was brought up by Dr. J. Paul Tanner in his recent commentary, in which he says that it talks a lot about the conquest of Egypt in Daniel 11, 40 through 45, but it barely mentions the war with the king of the north. So he's saying that maybe if the king of the north was the Antichrist, you know, it talks a lot about his warring against the king of the south, but it barely mentions the war with Assyria. To this, I would say that it does say that the king of the north came against him, quote, like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. It also mentions that he overwhelms them. So this seems to me to be sufficient discussion of the battle itself, especially if it was a decisive battle, as the text seems to suggest. In addition, it also seems to me that you should also object to the term many countries here, because using that logic, we should assume that these other countries were not really attacked since we don't have exhaustive commentary on the battles or even how to know which countries are being referred to. Of course, we don't get to demand how much we're told on a given subject, and it's not a good hermeneutic to suggest that we should. I would also point out that verse 40 seems to be a kind of summary verse. It may be that it's summarizing verses 41 through 45, in which case the news from the north and east that troubles the Antichrist in verse 44 might actually be the attack of the king of the north, which is simply summarized in verse 40. I favor the three king view, but at the end of the day, nothing much changes. The Antichrist is still defeating the macro and micro enemies of Israel in this passage. I just think that Assyria is also being defeated as well. The final thing I want to discuss today is the three kings of Daniel 7. And I know I'm confusing you with throwing a different set of three kings at you, uh, but this one is from Daniel 7, which reads, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, and I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man with a mouth speaking pompous words, and then later on in Daniel 7:24, the angel interprets this as the Antichrist essentially uprooting or uh, humiliating three of these ten kings. I think that these wars in Daniel 11 are essentially a picture of the Antichrist subduing those three horns or king's kingdoms from Daniel 7. This view has a lot to recommend it, in my opinion. 
When the angel interprets what the Antichrist does to these three kings, it uses this Hebrew word, which is sometimes translated as humble or to bring low or to subdue. He does this to those three kings. And in Daniel 11, it's sort of like a picture, a story of capitulation, of almost like groveling, certainly subduing or humbling of these kings would be involved. I think you can make a strong case that Egypt, Libya, and Cush are described that way clearly as being subdued. I think this would also fit with the timeline, that is, whatever the Antichrist does with the three kings in Daniel 7, I think must occur between the covenant and the midpoint for the reasons we've discussed earlier. In my opinion, the three kings could be Egypt, Libya, and Cush, but I lean towards the idea that the three kings are Egypt, Assyria, and whoever the king of the east is. But it should be said clearly that there's no hard evidence that I can see that the three kings mentioned in Daniel 7, which will be subdued, are necessarily the, the people that are uh, defeated in Daniel 11. It's only a theory, but I think it's a pretty good one. All right, that's it for today. Check out the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. Subscribe to the podcast on any podcatcher, and I will see you next time.